seek your peace. We desire your peace. We long for your peace. We long for your presence, God. As we turn our hearts now to your word, God, we enter into a, we continue in this holy moment asking that you would speak to our hearts, you would illumine our minds, you would equip us to walk in obedience to you. We want to be and have been called to be a holy people, people set apart for you alone, to teach us today to desire you above everything else. Train our hearts to know and love your goodness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. First Peter 2, 11 through 17. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which weigh war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. This is the word of God. Well, good morning, family of God. That's what I like to hear. <laughs> I love y'all. I want to have the Lord speak to us today. Don't you want the Lord to speak to you today? Well, because of that, I'm going to start with prayer. I believe we need God's help today. And we have a lot to, talk, to tackle. So let's dive in. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your spirit the spirit of the truth that leads us to truth. And Father, today we need your truth and your truth in your life to come into our hearts and change us and transform us and make us new. Lord, in this area of governments and authorities, Lord, we need more of your character and your kingdom in our hearts than we do the world. And so, Father, I pray that you would speak to us in a powerful way, right where we where we need to hear it today each person in this room. And Father, I pray that you'd use me as an instrument today to bring glory to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week, Pastor Chauncey left us with a solid quote about our identity and then fleshed out its implications. Y'all remember that quote? What he said was, what we think about what God thinks of us will determine where we look for identity and where we look to find it, or what we do to find it, excuse me. That was such a good message, right, about our identity. And we see some of that picked up here in verse 11. Let's, turn, let's look at verse 11. In verse 11, we know he is talking not just to any old body, but he's talking to the beloved. Everybody say beloved. Beloved is a term of endearment for the people of God. 
And now that some of our identity has been clarified in the verses prior to, he wants to root us in some new identity that we didn't quite get in the first verses that we got of last week. And these two, two new identities are sojourners and exiles. Everybody say sojourner. Everybody say exile. Peter continues and says that we're sojourners. Sojourners and exiles are synonymous in the scriptures. It is to be a resident alien in a foreign land. It harkens back to many of the stories that we got in the Old Testament, the stories of Abraham and the patriarchs and uh, his, his kids after him and the Israelites. And, you know, those people were exiles and sojourners in a foreign land often, over and over again. It was a term to describe their spiritual and social condition in the world. See, what Peter's trying to get us to see is this. Christians are citizens of two worlds. The old one in which they lived and played and grew up in before their conversion, and the new one into which they were, they were now to live in their post-conversion. But some of their social situations and statuses in the world did not change. The call was still the same. To live a new life in an old world. And that's our sermon title today. Everybody say, a new life in an old world. Now, before we begin diving into the commandments, oftentimes we receive commandments from the apostles as external laws that we have to obey in order to be saved. And that's not how Peter is presenting that here. That is not the way he's presenting it. Catherine Gonzalez, a New Testament scholar, puts it this way. The behavior required of Christians is for the purpose of letting the soul, the part of a person, remain free. I'm going to say that for you one more time. The, the way that Peter's putting it to you in this passage is so that you can understand that the behavior required of a Christian is for the purpose of letting the soul, the heart of a person, remain free. Everybody say free. We have to understand that in order to understand where the the heart of these charges is coming from. Peter is always coming from a place of wanting God's best for you and for us in the whole world. Do y'all hear that? Peter wants that for your life. Peter wants that for the world. But Peter knows that following something else always leads to more bondage. We see that in verse 16, that living free and being a servant of God is not opposite of being free, but instead lives in harmony with, with freedom. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Selwyn, a New Testament scholar, rightly points out that Christian freedom Rest not on escape from service, but a change of masters. You see, the old heads used to have a problem, used to have a problem with, with, um, with, with the way that, um, people would see it. But they had no problem always tying virtue to freedom. That sounds foreign to us, right? Morals and freedom. Strict ethics and freedom, 
but that wasn't foreign to them. True freedom for us, I want you to hear this today, true freedom for us is not like the way that we look at freedom today. Freedom for us is the power to become what we ought to be. The power to become what we should be. And for the Christian, it's free bondage. Free bondage, willing bondage to the one who's going to set us free. That's God. Everybody say, that's God. Peter knows that your freedom is deeply connected to what you are a servant of. And who are we to be a servant of? Well, he gives a warning in verse 12. Excuse me, verse 11. He says, abstain from the desires of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. The flesh represents our relationship to sin. The soul represents our relationship to God. In 1 Peter 1.9, Peter says, the outcome of our faith is the salvation of our souls. But remaining sin, the internal struggle, which is called the flesh, brings war against your soul. Now, Peter does not say that the passions of the flesh wage war for your soul. If you are in Christ, you are secure. Everybody say you're secure. If your heart belongs to God, if your heart belongs to Christ, your soul belongs to God. But the fleshly passions wage war against your soul. And what are those passions? Well, a lot of the New Testament scholars say, well, it's not just sexual desires. Y'all, sometimes we make, we make a lot of sexual desires being wrong, and that's, and that's what we think is just the flesh. But do you know that there's all kinds of things that stop us from worshiping the Lord purely? Ephesians 2.3 says, when Paul's speaking on the passion, says, In among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, the body, you know, we can attribute that to, some, to sex and sexual desires, but also the mind is what he says. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You can almost hear Paul saying that that was who you were. That was who you were, but that's not who you are. Abstain from those passions of the flesh that keep you from serving the Lord fully. Or in Galatians 5, 19 through 21, Paul seems to flesh out what it means to be fleshy a little bit more. Look at this list or listen to this list. He says sexual immorality. So, yes, sexual immorality is one of them. But impurity, sensuality, idolatry, making something else, making something else greater than God, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, Y'all, we don't talk a lot about jealousy. We don't talk a lot about jealousy. Sometimes we get jealous. We think it's just safe to be jealous. Fits of anger. Have you ever been caught in a fit of anger? Rivalries, dissensions, divisions. Oh, my goodness. Can we stop dividing? Can we stop dividing? Man, if we could stop dividing, maybe we'd be less like the flesh. Envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things of the like. That's a long list, right? This ain't the fun part, is it? 
I can tell you the truth. He warns us. And he warns us again that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who make a practice of those things. These desires literally wage war if you are in Christ against your soul. They try to steal your freedom. Not only does it try to steal your freedom, but it tries to steal your attractiveness. When Peter calls us to have good conduct in this passage, he uses a word called kalos, which shows that he's thinking of beauty much, as much as he's thinking about purity. He's thinking about attractiveness as much as he's thinking about purity. Peter cares about the witness we have, y'all. And the next verse, verse 12, points us to a key thing. That good and honorable conduct beats false accusation in the end. Accusation is something that comes to you if you're in Christ. You ever been accused, church? The accuser, also known as Satan, is actively working through men to accuse God's people. It's important to know that people aren't who we wrestle with, y'all. But it's still true that we have enemies, and those enemies and powers and principalities, spiritual forces in the heavenly realms, according to Ephesians 6, accuse the saints all the time. They did it to the Lord. They'll do it to you. They'll do it to us. The early Christians definitely experienced this. Their lives were quite odd to very, very the the neighbors they had. They didn't quite go into the temples that their neighbors used to go into. They didn't take part in celebrations that included worship of fake gods. Some in the community would think it was a terrible thing for them to not go to the temples, and they'd be bent out of shape about it. It would call for even treason sometimes. Sometimes there were rumors that Christians were having orgies because they were having something called love feasts. Love feasts or agape meals where Christian fellowship meals were calling the meal Jesus shared with his disciples in his ministry. They even spoke of eating the body of Jesus and drinking his blood. It was weird. Of course, we know that this is communion today, right? We come and we take communion if you're in Christ. And some really smart people did some really awesome explaining in the centuries to come of what this actually meant for the church to take the body of Christ and the blood of Jesus in such a way that it made it easier for the outside world to understand. But sometimes Christians looked like they were a threat. They were a threat to society. They were dispersed, as we saw earlier in the, in the passage, in the, in the book of First Peter, they were a part of the dispersion. Of course, you see it on the news sometimes, right? Every time there's some refugees that come to a place, what do some people do in the news? They immediately start thinking of them as a threat, a threat to society, a threat to their way of life. That is why Peter moved by the Holy Spirit, said, you need to put to silence the ignorance of foolish people in verse 15. 
That's why it's super important that we do good, y'all. We do good. The world doesn't see right. And our lives are a picture, a little picture into the new world that God is bringing into the earth. Your kingdom come, your will be done. That's what we're asking the Lord to do. And our lives are used to do that. So what should we do? We keep on doing one honorable act after another, bringing good into the world, literal good, beautiful things, right in front of the lost in a way that converts the soul of the non-believer. Peter cares about evangelism, y'all. He cares about witness. God is glorified in the way we walk, fam. There's no way around it. You know what's really dope? My uh, my neighbor this week. It was it's been a lot of fun doing neighborhood ministry, y'all. Chauncey, I really appreciate you driving down our neighborhood. I don't know why you were doing that, but you did, and it led to a lot of really good ministry. You see, when Christians are available, you know, she, one of my neighbors, her uh, son who was younger than her, she's 87 years old. Her son was making his breakfast shake, fell backwards, kind of passed out, busted his head on, on the cabinets, and there was blood going everywhere. She thought he had a heart attack. She called the paramedics. The paramedics came, got him. Chauncey drives down the street from dropping off Malachi and says, hey, bro, you got a neighbor who's outside with a paramedic. I go over there and start talking to her and praying with her. Later, I get done with doing all kinds of stuff. Some of you guys got to hang out with me with the prayer, uh, prayer fellowship that evening. Afterwards, I got to go home and talk to her. She hadn't heard all day. She hadn't heard all day what was going on with her son. She couldn't get a hold of him at Integris Baptist. She couldn't talk to him. Nobody was answering the phone. So we would drive up there and we start driving up there. And you know, as she's talking to me on the way back home after we visited, she starts talking to me about her life. She starts telling me about how she grew up in the Great Depression and how the only thing that keeps her Walking with Jesus today, or knowing Jesus, is this. Her dad never cheated anybody. That's good conduct. Her dad never cheated a soul, she said. And she said, the Salvation Army fed me during the Great Depression meals every single day. That's what Peter's talking about right there. That's what Peter's talking about. Yo, it made me want to start a food ministry, y'all. I was like, I was like, oh man, that's, that's tight. The Salvation Army, I need to put some more coins in them things. Does that seem pressure packed to you, church? Does it feel that way? I know it started off heavy. I'm trying, I'm trying to, I'm trying to lay it on heavy because I want us to get this. Our, our walk really matters. Who we are before the world matters. They see a new world every time. Every time we act like Jesus. They see a better world every time we act like Jesus. 
If it seems pressure packed, I don't want to make it seem like it's all on our own strength, though. Let me give you some comfort then without removing the responsibility. Because the high priestly prayer is a beautiful place to look for this. Jesus prayed this for you, family. He prayed this for you. Church, I want you to turn to a neighbor and say something. I want you to mean this. I want you to tell them you're built for this. (laughs) You're built for this. In John 17, verses 14 through 19, Jesus says, I have given them your words, speaking to the Father. And this world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. This is our reality, church, right? We are sojourners and exiles, as we see here in this text. Verse 15, he says, I do not ask for you to take them out of the world. Jesus never asked for us to come out of the world. Jesus actually asked for us to be in the world. But that you, the Father, keep them from the evil one. Jesus really wants us to be free from the evil one. wants us to be pure and holy. They are not of this world. Just as I am not of this world. We're not of this world because we're connected to Jesus. He's not of this world. We are not of this world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so have I sent them into the world. We are not sent because of any merit of our own. We are sent because Jesus sends us. Jesus is ascending God. He sends us. And as he is sent, so are we sent. And then he says in verse 19, And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Guess who was there to hear that message? Guess who was there to hear that prayer? None other than Peter. Peter and all the disciples, they were there and they heard that prayer. And guess what he is charging us to do as well? The same thing, to be connected to Jesus and to go into the world. Jesus, who died on the cross, Does that get old to you? Does that get old to you? Him saying, I consecrated myself. I was set apart for a holy purpose for you. He was sacrificed and decided to give his life as a ransom for many, for you, and for the whole world. You see, through the submission of Jesus, through the submission of Jesus, he has called all people to a relationship with himself. Now, for all those who were not in Christ, for those who do not have a relationship with him, you have an opportunity, an opportunity today to have a relationship with him through his submission. He says, I consecrate myself. I'm going smaller. I'm going to the cross. So that people can be made 
known to God. That's how. That's how. We have a relationship with him. And if you're a Christian today, the rest of our passage, this is, this is so beautiful. This is so beautiful. Submission is something that's so beautiful. And we've let the world co-opt what submission is. We have let the world tell us what submission is. We have the best picture of submission the world could ever see. It's in the Bible. Jesus is our picture of submission. And yet we have let the world say what submission is. Submission looks like Jesus. That's where we start our conversation when we talk about submission to governments and authorities. We can't start anywhere else. It doesn't make any sense otherwhere, anywhere else. The world's too broken. It's too broken and messed up to submit if it doesn't look like the cross. If it doesn't look like Jesus. We look to Jesus when we talk about submitting to authorities in verse 13 and imitate his way and those who follow his way. Now, here's some background for what Peter is about to get us into. We're going to talk a lot about household codes in the week to come. But these instructions are called household codes. These household codes are something that are really interesting, and they help us to understand what context Peter is coming from when he gives us these commands. These household codes were already begun by people like Aristotle, and they, can't, they contain descriptions of the ideal family according to those societal expectations of their time. Paul gave similar instructions in Ephesians and Colossians, and we're seeing them here for Peter. Paul gave instructions to both husbands and wives, fathers and children, and slaves and masters. Except for married couples, Peter does not give those same kind of back-and-forth commands. Peter does not focus on that, except for the married couples again. Peter focuses on how believers should relate to the world. Paul focuses on how believers should relate to one another. Does that make sense, church? Peter is focused on, if he's talking to the husband and wife, he does that in, this, in chapter 3. But in the rest of the passage, this passage here, and our passage a couple weeks from now, he doesn't focus on the other side of the equation. He just focuses on how we should respond. We hear a lot in our spheres of influence. A lot of you guys come from different places. You guys are hearing things from, about social justice. A lot, of, a lot of us hear about civil disobedience. We rarely ever hear about what it means to obey civilly. Here's the heart 
of Christian submission, according to our text. Verse 13 says, be subject. The verb means to place under. It is a military term that pictures a soldier's submission to a commanding officer. Submission is virtually a synonym for obedience. I'm going to say that one more time for us, because I want us to get that. Submission is a synonym for obedience. God commands us to submit. But the grammar here indicates a willing submission, not an unwilling one. Does that seem scary to you, the church, to submit willingly to governments and authorities in 2021? Is that a little bit? I'm glad for your honesty, brother, because I know I did. As I was writing this, I was like, man, come on, man. It's the word, though. A lot of times we might think that those in authority over us are not looking out for our best interests. But here's the key. You ready for it? Submission to others is not absolute. Submission to others is not absolution. It's not absolute. It is not for their sake that we submit, y'all. Verse 13 says it is for the Lord's sake. This is the theological basis for our submission to civil authority. Romans 13 warns, let every person be subject to government authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. Anybody, anybody can obey a law to avoid punishment. But that's not what, what he's saying here. He's saying Christians obey the law for the Lord's sake. We submit to follow the Lord's example. We see it in stories like Matthew 22, verses 21. It says, therefore, render to Caesars the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God. We submit because we are free. Matthew 17, 24 through 27 says, when they came to Capernaum, the collectors of two drachma tax went up to Peter. Again, this is Peter experiencing this again. And said, does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? For whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, From others, Jesus said, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them. Go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. That is the experience Peter had with Jesus when dealing with some civil authorities. That led Peter to say in this pastoral moment to some people who are in the diaspora, spread out all over the place, that you are free people. You are free people. Honor the emperor. Respect the government. Jesus didn't use his freedom as a cover-up for evil, like verse 16 says. In fact, he went a step further. He cared 
about others' consciences even. Implications of that are massive, y'all. Christians are to be subject, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution. That statement is bigger than any governmental system and any political party. It also gives us levels to think about, national and local, as we are supposed to submit to the emperor as king, or like our president today, and the local governors. We have governors today, so we know what that's about. You know, sometimes I'm pressing on us a little bit. I really am. I'm pressing on us because I I know we talk about social justice a lot. But sometimes we don't realize how good we have it. If we disagree with our president, let me give you something real quick. If we disagree with our president... We only have eight years with that man or woman. Eight years at max. There's been protections put in our Constitution. Praise the Lord. If after four years we see that this person is not fit to run our government, we can say, nah, man, let's vote against that dude. Let's vote against that girl. We can push them out. If during the four years it's real bad, we can impeach that dude or gal. We can do that. Y'all, do y'all know who Peter was looking dead in the face some years later? It was Nero. It was Nero. Y'all... When Peter was talking about this, he didn't know. He didn't know if a king was going to live five years, 15 years, 30 years, 50 years. Who knows when his reign was going to end? Nobody knew except God. God knew. Nero's the one who's going to kill Peter. And yet, here's Peter saying, submit to every emperor. That was not an easy thing for him to say. He wasn't just thinking about it tritely. He wasn't just saying, oh yeah, I'm an emperor, yeah. Yeah, it's cool. No. This was a discipleship issue. He knew, he knew possibly for some of them as they submit to authorities, it could be costly. Where did Peter get this from? None other than Jesus. Jesus who, when walking before Pilate, Pilate asked him, yo, Where's your kingdom at? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it was of this world, my people would be fighting for me. This is not my kingdom. 
you're looking at this upside down and wrong. I'm going to the cross willingly so that others can be saved and forgiven of their sins. You're thinking about a political movement that I'm not a part of right now. My kingdom is coming. And it will happen that I will set everything right. But this is not the time. It does not say we have to agree with the government or its leaders and what they do. It does not say we have to like the policies that govern us all the time. But it does say that we need to submit. Verse 14 states the purpose of government. To punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Government exists to bring about justice of the sword variety kind. It's not too good at doing the restorative justice part sometimes. Good thing we have the church and God's people out in the world to do that part. But what it does do is it allows for the government to promote good ethics or good morals and moral behavior. No government is perfect. Not ours, not anyone overseas' government. No human government is perfect. But the Christian is still called to be submissive. Now, you might be wondering, yo, Jared, what do you do with all the passages in which it looked like there was some civil disobedience going on? What are you doing with that? Those dudes were stupid corrupt. They were crazy corrupt. Well, firstly, I want to sympathize with that, with that sentiment, because that's like the first thing I run to. That's how my mind works. Yo, what about all that, you know, something, something, something. And secondly, I just want to affirm there really are stories of civil disobedience in the Bible. Do y'all remember the story of Esther? Do y'all remember her? She had two meetings with King Ahasuerus. In which, while being respectful to the king, calling him king often, she planned to stop a wicked plan. And to Haman, who was kind of like the vice president at the time, second in command, she just flat out put him on blast. Haman's plan was genocide, though, of a whole people. Verse 4 of chapter 7 says, And and Esther says, for we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. So there were levels to her involvement. If it was just for the slavery part, she was like, man, I would have, we would have took a longer approach to this. But because Haman was about to straight up murk everybody that was a Jew, she's like, nuh-uh, we got to put a stop to this right now. This has got to end. In Exodus 1.17, you guys remember this? John Mark had us remember, memorize the passage. The Jewish midwives refused to abort the male children as Pharaoh had commanded. They just said, you know what, Pharaoh? You're trying to kill some kids. We ain't about that life. We about to grab these kids up. We doing something else. In Daniel three sixteen through eighteen, three Hebrew boys refused to worship Nebuchadnezzar 
and his golden image. It was against who they were supposed to be called to worship in pure devotion alone. So they called him king. And then they went into the fire and accepted the consequences that were going to come their way. And you know what? God met them there and saved them. And King Nebuchadnezzar got to experience God in a way he never thought he would. In Daniel 6.10, Daniel openly prayed to God in violation of Darius' edict. Peter himself was involved with some civil disobedience. The authorities ordered Peter to stop proclaiming Jesus in Acts 4.20. But he said, we cannot but speak of what we've seen and what we have heard. And in Acts 5.29, after he was released and let go, he is called back again and they warn him for a second time. And you know what he says to him? We must obey God rather than men. You see, the Bible does record pictures of civil disobedience. But in the epistles, it never tells us to practice civil disobedience. You won't find it once. We would do well then to examine our times and a lot of the stories of the scripture and ask, is it worth accepting the consequences for? Because a lot of us like to assume in here we're like disciples of Martin Luther King Jr. Uh Uh-oh. I'm about to go there. I'm about to go there, y'all, because the people who propose nonviolent social change, which, by the way, the Bible never, never promotes violent social change. Never. We never pick the sword up, ever. We don't bear arms. But if you feel in your conscience that this is wicked, kids are in the streets dying because of governmental regimes, then with a nonviolent way, with a nonviolent way, you can choose to resist. But you gotta be able to accept the consequences. Y'all, if y'all do this, if y'all do any kind of civil disobedience, please do your research. Please do your research and know your Bible. Do you know how many times It's been in the news where I've just cringed, like straight up cringed because people ain't done their research. They started talking about nonviolent direct action, have no idea what the six steps for social change are. And they haven't even even internalized that enough and done the research in the community to really do any kind of effective change. And then their heart motive is wrong. The. The, the motive is to overthrow power instead of reconcile. Jesus calls us to be reconciled in every form and fashion. My goodness, I, I'm, I, 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 if, 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 you, if you haven't, if you haven't, just get on the King Institute. Get Strength to Love by Martin Luther King Jr. Start reading it. If you haven't, If you haven't done that, please, please, before you burn all the bridges around you, please do some research. 
Yo, I'm being real with you. Some of y'all in here keep, I keep hearing about conversations. Conversations in which our white brothers and sisters in here feel hurt. Because we don't know how to talk about it. We don't know how to talk about race relations. We don't know how to do nonviolent direct action in a pure and humble way. Some of our brown and black brothers and sisters are hurt because we don't know how to have humble conversations. All we're thinking about is ourselves. We're not thinking about reconciliation of our brothers and sisters. Man, I don't want us to burn bridges, y'all. We're friends. We're family. We got to learn to love each other. I love y'all. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, brother. Thanks, brother. I love, I love my, my brown and black and white brothers and sisters. Your, your neighbor next to you, especially your brother and sister in Christ, is not the enemy. Get that in your head, please. They are not the enemy. When you, when you see something unjust on the TV, in the news, don't go to your Christian friend and start venting and make them feel like a villain. They are not your enemy. They're your friend. Go vent and tell them, hey, will you pray with me? I'm struggling. Maybe you can start the humble road. I'm struggling. Man, you know how many times I struggled the last couple years? I'm really glad I had some white brothers and sisters who were able to process that with me. I love you, Reed. Thank you. I appreciate you. I love you, John Mark. I appreciate you, you know. I really appreciate you. Chris, I've had conversations with you. I appreciate you. I really do. And that's where Peter finishes our text today, in verse 17. He tells us four imperatives that don't have any kind of really order to them, but they're four imperatives nonetheless that are good. He says, first, honor everyone. Why are we to esteem all people? Because they're made in God's image. God said, they look like me. They are in my image. Everyone you encounter, everyone you come across is someone who's made in God's image. And in a step further, is someone Jesus Christ died for. That's why we honor everyone. It doesn't matter if they're in a low social class or their authorities. We honor everyone because we long for everyone to know the reconciling love of Jesus. The next word is love the brotherhood. As we honor everyone, we have a higher obligation to love one another. That's why when we get together, we don't burn our brother and sister bridges. We just don't. We're supposed to love the brotherhood. Love. You know, in First Corinthians 13, I know it's a, it's a passage that is often used for marriage and 
relationships. But listen, one of the best parts about 1 Corinthians 13 is this, that love is not self-seeking. We love the brotherhood because we're not self-seeking. We submit because we're not self-seeking. We care about others. We love others. We love the brotherhood. John 13, 34 through 35 says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. By this, this is super important, by this, all people, all people will know that you are my disciples. Y'all, if you look out in the world, doesn't the world look around and they go, you ain't got the answers, you ain't got the answers, you ain't got the answers, you ain't got the answers. Who's got the answers? And they're just looking. Who's got the answers? Well, church, let me just submit this to you today. If we did a better job of loving, if we did just a better job of loving and having these dialogues about race and, and reconciliation and um, the injustices in the world, if we just had a better dialogue about that and people saw it be civil, I guarantee people would come running to the pews. They would come running to those meetings. In fact, we might start having city hall meetings right here in this congregation. They might come here and start listening to John Mark give a, you know, his, you know, his John Markian spiel. If we just did this, if we just love one another, they would know we are Jesus' disciples. And I promise you, Jesus is still very attractive. The problem is that sometimes they don't see it because they're looking at us, who are supposed to be a picture of this, as sojourners and exiles in the world. The next thing we do is we fear God. We are to honor everyone. We are to love the brotherhood. But we are to fear God. If you do not fear God, you will not honor everyone. You will not honor the emperor, and you will not honor the brotherhood, or love the brotherhood, excuse me. A couple weeks ago, we read 1 Peter 1.17, which says, And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of exile. The fear of God, is, we, we said, was reverence and holiness it was respect and awe, not a terror, not like, not, not, we're not thinking about like terror there. We're thinking about respect and awe when we talk about someone who fears the Lord. And so when we fear God, when we respect and awe Him, we're gonna naturally love the image in every person. And we're gonna love God's bride whom He died for. To fear God is to fear nothing else. And it frees us to love. The next one is honor the emperor. I feel as if we need this, y'all. I almost put this application before fear God to finish there. But as I was studying it, I just kind of felt like, no, this is where we need to finish. Because this is all about the glory of God and people being reconciled to him through our witness to our lives. The new life in an old world. But as I came across this verse while studying, it just hit me. Man, this is it. This is it. This is why we submit. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart 
King's heart, literally, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. See, when we get that Jesus is the one who's sitting on the throne, we have no problem when Jesus says, you, O man, O woman, submit. I have a higher person. I have a higher reason for your submission. I have a higher purpose for your submission. It may look like weakness to you, but it's strength. It may look like you weak, but in the end, you're going to be strong. And even more so, we're going to add to this number. You know, emperors are humans too. Kings are humans too. Your boss is a human too. Some of y'all can apply this to your boss when you look, when you're at work. Person's in authority in your life. How are you going to treat them? Honor. Which leads me to the end of this. I think some of us really want change in the world and all we want to do is yell. All we want to do is scream. All we want to do is do. We think the first action should be a do. I'm, I'm going to challenge you. I think it's kind of funny. It's 4th of July. I'm not always the most patriotic person in the world. Sometimes I'd rather celebrate Juneteenth than, than 4th of July when it's not like a fad, that is. But I just want to challenge you. This is challenging for me, too. Maybe our, we could do more good in the civil sphere if we pray. Because as God has the heart of a king in his hand and turns it whichever way he wills, we need to pray to the Lord who is in control to change the heart of men who are instituting unjust things or who are instituting just things. Y'all, if we want more people in the office, let's pray that are just. If we want more people who love people around them in high places, let's pray. If we want more people to stop being trampled underfoot in low societies, then let's pray that we get some people who value those people in low societies and we'll start making change. Because God is in control and God will get glory. That's where we finish today. Amen. Maybe what we should do to finish is just pray. Y'all with it? Let's pray. Father, we come before you. Lord, I know there's so much brokenness 
And Lord, we're called to submit. We really are. We're called to submit. Whether it's convenient or not, in our own eyes, you call us to submit. Whether the person is wicked or not, you call us to submit. You call us to honor. And yet, Lord, there's so much brokenness around us. And who can fix it? Only but Jesus. Only you, God, can fix it. And so we come before you right now, asking that our president, that our governors, that our people in Senate, people in House, people in authority over us in every single way, would all see their authority as one that's given by you and would steward it well. And Lord, if they don't want to, Lord, would you put people in positions of power that fear your name, that fear your name and will do justly in our midst. Lord, we long, we long for beloved community. We love, we long for a community that is more like your kingdom and less like the world, the old world that we're so accustomed to. Father, would you help your, 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 your way and your kingdom to break through? And Lord, we pray. Not our kingdom, but your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's continue in a spirit of prayer. I want you to bow your heads with me. Father.